You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thanks for tuning into Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in today's episode, we're going to be having a nickel investing roundtable. My first participant and guest is Alex Larn. He's the principal consultant with the CRU Group. He's based out of New York and he covers the nickel market. Also a returning guest, Brian Lenny of Junior Stock Review. He uh, writes about the nickel market and has given over the years specific nickel stock recommendations. And also joining us is the president, CEO and director of FPX Nickel, one of our sponsors, Martin Turen. Gentlemen, welcome onto the show. And Alex, let's kick it over to you first. You are one of the uh, keynote speakers on nickel at the PDAC. How about you give us an overview of some of the key points that you shared at PDAC to start off with, please? Sure thing, Bill. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, so I mean, I so I spoke on uh, nickel and I actually spoke in the the policy session about sort of the the geopolitics geopolitics of nickel and broadly thinking about you know that we're seeing increased supply concentration in certain countries, um, but at the same time on on the other side of that, you've got EV manufacturers and battery makers that are looking to take control of their supply to a greater extent um, with additional pressures from sort of ESG and other components. And how to how we may potentially be able to resolve those sort of conflicting issues. So, I mean, the number one thing that I think every everyone's very familiar with with nickel now is the battery side of the market is really important, and the battery side of the market is driven, especially in the short to medium term, by uptake of EVs. So, um, yeah, the nickel demand in batteries uh, has historically only been a handful of percent of the overall market, um, but that has grown rapidly. And I think we're, we're, we're closing in on sort of 10% of nickel demand going to the battery sector now, um, whereas that was just a few percent even a few years ago. Um, and that's really been driven by um, uptake of electric vehicles. And I think one thing that's important for the average person who may, may not necessarily consider the, the difference between different types of EVs and then even within sub-segments of that. So obviously, people are familiar, you've got full battery electric, ve- uh, electric vehicles um, that have no additional internal combustion engine, like a Tesla Model 3, for example. Um, it's worth noting that some of these, the Model 3 has a larger battery capacity than many other BEVs on the road. And broadly speaking, the battery capacity is an- analogous to the battery metals demand in there. So a Tesla Model 3 has more nickel in it than, say, a Nissan Leaf, which has, I think, about two-thirds the size battery capacity. Um, and then when you think about regular hybrids like uh, Toyota Prius, they are, they've got sort of one to two kilowatt batteries in them. So that's like a 60th of what's in a Tesla. So first things first, I think it's important for people when they're thinking about EVs, they may hear a big number for EVs. Maybe it's 10 million uh, sold in a particular year. It's important to think about how many of those are at the higher end um, in order to think about what the knock-on impacts are for, for battery metals demand. The other factor that's pushing that in, the, in a good direction for nickel is that cathode chemistries for batteries are becoming increasingly nickel intensive. There's been a, a pretty quick shift since sort of 2017, 18, that cobalt price spike and the general general desire of consumers to get away from reliance on the DRC for mined, unit, mined cobalt units and China for chemical cobalt units meant that people quite quickly looked to substitute cobalt out to the extent they possibly could of these batteries. And that resulted in a higher nickel intensity. Um, so we're also seeing more nickel per kilowatt hour, more kilowatts per car and more EVs on the road. So those three things together means more nickel in batteries. Um, so in terms of Crew's view on um, EV penetration, we've got um, from about 3% now 
of that's full battery electric vehicles. So discounting hybrids because of their lower nickel intensity, they'll use some, but not as much as the batteries, uh, the BEVs. Um, going from 3% in 2020, we have that battery electric vehicle proportion of the overall global light duty vehicle market reaching 22% by 2030. It's worth noting a lot of that's expected to occur in the back end of the 2020s. So by 2025, we only have that at 8%. So you can see that it's um, more exponential growth because it's in that mid-2020s kind of time um, that the total cost of ownership of EVs starts to become really competitive with ICEs, combustion engine vehicles, without necessarily relying on subsidies. And the importance of subsidies, is, you can see, is crucial at the moment because if you looked at China in 2019, EV sales, you know, they've been increasing by, I think, more than 15, 20% year on year from 2015 to 16 to 17 to 18. And then in 2019, they pulled back on the subsidies in July of 2019. And you can see there's this huge dip from June to July. And for the back half of 2019, EV sales really underperformed. Um, and and it's, it shows you just how closely linked um, those sales are to, to subsidies. So that's one thing that's going to be critical to EV uptake in the next few years as well. Um, so that's sort of the, the overall overarching driver for nickel demand and why everyone's caring about batteries. The other factor is that the nickel market is substantially larger, right? If we're seeing an extra 100,000 tons of nickel in batteries, that may not necessarily be a huge deal in the context of a 2.4-ish million ton market. Um, but the thing is, is that battery nickel requires, it, you, you can't really use, um, although we'll get onto it in a minute, um, class two nickel, that is nickel pig iron or ferro-nickel iron, nickel alloys. Those are used to make stainless steel for the most part, which is where 70% of nickel steel is used to make stainless. So there's another thing for, I think, your average person looking at nickel as a, an attractive battery metal. It's worth realizing that as much as there's a lot of volatility in the price, but what's going on in the Chinese stainless market can be at least as important for the battery sector. Um, so you may see you may be seeing all this really positive news about EV uptake and batteries and so on. But if Chinese manufacturing is underperforming and stainless is doing badly, then the overall nickel price could be dropping at the same time. Um, yeah, so, so but batteries are becoming far more important. And the concern is that we won't be able to get enough of battery appropriate forms of nickel uh, in order to meet demand. So what we, we, that sort of has been the concern for a while. And that certainly was a big factor behind the increase in the nickel price through the past sort of 18 months or so. Um, and the response to that increase in demand in particular has been met by predominantly Chinese investors, but Indonesian projects looking at the hydrometallurgical processing of nickel laterite ores in order to produce an intermediate that can quite readily be turned into nickel sulfate, which is the form of nickel you need for batteries, as opposed to nickel metal, which is what's used in metallurgical applications. Um, and that, in theory, should be a relatively low cost for an operating, operating cost. But the reason that these plants haven't been built, you know, over the past 10 to 20 years, there have been several HPAL plants, hydro, high-pressure acid leaching, that's the hydrometallurgical processing methodology, which have had substantial capex overruns. They've had difficulties ramping up. Um, not necessarily all of them. There have been some good examples, but there have been plenty of bad ones as well. Um, and therefore, your sort of typical Western investor, if you like, or your project financier, hasn't been too interested in looking at those sorts of hydro projects, even with an understanding that we're looking at a shortage of battery-grade nickel in the future. But the Chinese, I think, partly for strategic reasons, they recognize that they control a huge amount of the downstream battery value chain, the precursor manufacturing, the cell manufacturing, and the EV manufacturing itself, and saying, well, okay, we're going to be very reliant on nickel in the future. We need to get ahead of the curve. And they're funding these projects in order to meet that demand. Um, 
a lot of the, the they're supposed to be there's three real projects that are advanced stages of development. One's supposed to be starting up this year and the other two next year. Um, and to some extent, they will help to meet demand from the battery sector. Um, but what you can see there is far greater concentration of, at the mine level on supply from Indonesia and remaining uh, sort of nickel sulfate, the chemical you need for batteries, that being more and more concentrated in China. And at the same time, you've got consumers outside of those regions saying, well, not only do we need to get hold of nickel sulfate in order to develop, um, so, so say somewhere like Canada, excellent nickel resources in the ground, um, but not much downstream um, in terms of moving material into the battery sector. Obviously, Vale and Glencore process uh, the nickel here through and nickel up in Canada through to metal forms, but that predominantly doesn't get used. In fact, Vale produces to such high specifications, they're working in the high purity, very high value add market um, for use in stuff like plating um, and other and aerospace super applications. So they aren't necessarily think, uh, looking to move that into the battery space right now. And um, in the US, you have, for example, especially if you look at Tesla, you've got EV production, but you don't have much upstream of that. You've not got a huge amount of mining in the ground, but you've got certainly got no very little nickel sulfate production, very little precursor and cathode active material uh, manufacturing. So people are reliant on either getting their intermediates, their nickel sulfate, their precursors or their cells um, from abroad for the most part. And it looks, and the increasing concentration in China and Indonesia makes it difficult to see how that will be changed. But the additional factor there is not only do Western consumers want to get hold of this material, there's also increasing pressure from an ESG perspective. Um, if you think about Indonesia, I mean, I'm not an environmental consultant, so I can't talk about it too authoritatively, but it's a very biodiverse region. There's been um, the HPAL projects wanted to use deep sea tailings, which is what's currently used for a similar operation in Papua New Guinea, the Ramu plant. Um, but they were not given permission for that. So they're using onshore tailings. Um, and there's some sort of, I guess, perceived concern around that from a, uh, you know, we we're talking about a uh, seismically active region with very heavy rainfall. And that's a concern for for the prospect of tailings spills, for example, at the same time, mining on a large scale in Indonesia in you know very environmentally sensitive areas is obviously not ideal as well. So there's a concern there, and, and I think you see, you know, Tesla um, had that announcement. I think it was probably when was it? it was maybe in 2018, 20 no, it was 2019. I think um, you know we want green nickel. That's what we want, um, and green is a very broad term that is very hard to define specifically. But um, there's clearly a a perception and understanding of the risks around the PR damage that might be done to big high-profile companies, especially when EVs, the whole driver behind EVs is the green driver, right? Um, so if you if that gets undermined by the materials that you're using to make those vehicles, then that's a really that makes things really tough for you. Um, and at the same time, the, the other driver you have there is, is uh, provincial, federal, uh, state governments that are looking to develop a downstream um, EV sector themselves and understand, yeah, places like Canada, you've got, you've got nickel, you've got cobalt, we've got lithium potentially coming. Um, you know, we've got key aspects in order to potentially make precursors and cathodes and maybe EVs in the future. Um, and the government is certainly interested in, you know, what can we do to accelerate and develop that? And at the same time, that's great for the government is less reliant from sort of a general trade perspective on places like China and consumers are as well. And they can be more confident in the traceability and the sustainability of those units. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I think those those are really the the key sort of highlights. I think the other sort of potential um, players that could be taking a step in uh, in. in helping to meet those supply chain gaps that we see in North America and to, to a slightly lesser extent, but not dissimilar in Europe. Um, we've got material in the ground. We've potentially got EVs, but we've not got enough in the middle. Um, is You've got, I guess, two options. One is we want to see, or we maybe may start to see OEMs, automakers, looking further upstream, taking stakes. You see Tesla again um, announced a few weeks ago that the, the old um, what will form what will soon no longer be Vale New Caledonia's operation in Goro in New Caledonia um, has been purchased by a different set, a consortium of uh, investors. And Tesla is down to act as sort of a technical advisor there, um, which I'm not sure exactly what that necessarily entails, but I think it's important to see that kind of OEM involvement in order to say, okay, we want the nickel in this format. We want to understand where it's coming from. And we also want to have security of supply there to the extent that that is possible. So if we start to see the big three U.S. automakers taking those kinds of steps, then that, that, that could be an important driver, especially development of nickel projects in, in North America, I'd say. Um, yeah, the other one I mentioned, governmental uh, control and so on. And then on the, on the project developers themselves, what you're seeing, especially over the past year, 18 months, more and more projects understanding that people want, ex they want exposure to the battery sector. That's the bit of the nickel market that's growing really quickly. That's where a lot of the value is. But... They're not necessarily, but, but you can't just say, well, we're mining nickel, right? You need to show that route to market. And that's why you see more and more project developers um, showing how their material will get to, to nickel sulfate, whether they're putting in novel processes to do that themselves, or whether they're working with people downstream to say, you know, we've got this precursor manufacturing joining up with us. They're going to put in the refinery and we're going to produce you know, what goes into the refinery and we'll end up with nickel sulfate. And that's how we're doing it. I think that's what people are really looking for um, from a you know, from a, not just at the retail investor level, but certainly sort of, you know, uh, big project finances as well. And which was on that point, I know obviously um, FPX has a particularly unique uh, sort of deposit and flow sheet. Is that right, Martin? Yeah, that's right. So we we do produce a product that would, you know, in concentrate form be a, a ferro-nickel style of concentrate, which would be sort of most obviously used as a, as a direct feed to, to the traditional use of nickel into the stainless steel electric arc furnace. However, we have done work to demonstrate that concentrate is quite readily uh, dissolvable into solution, um, which would then uh, have the ability to produce both a nickel sulfate and a cobalt sulfate product uh, for that would be useful or util utilizable in the, in the EV battery market. And one question I would put back to you, Alex, is um, at the end of the day, companies like ours are always going to be driven by the economics um, in terms of what is the most uh, profitable path to market for for our the products that we can produce, and the key one of the key kind of assumptions that would go into that for companies like FPX is a view on what the what a premium, if any, uh, of a durable nature might be in place for nickel sulfate over the pricing of LME metal, and you know the nickel sulfate premium, of course, has bounced up and down. Uh, quite a bit over the last few years. It's traded at a fairly significant uh, premium to, to metal, but it's also traded at a discount to metal at certain times, and you've had that dislocation. Um, so I think one of the... I'd be interested in sort of Crew's view, your view on that sulfate premium, which at the end of the day, I think is going to be set by that incremental cost to, to recover nickel in, into that form. Um, 
whether from you know lottery deposits going through the 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 NPI to Matt Root or from HPL. But um, I think for for both investors and for companies, getting a handle on that long term sort of sulfate premium is is a is an interesting and not easy to answer question. And I wonder what your views are on that. Sure. Um, no, I, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, CIU's sort of base case view, and like you say, yeah, the, the nickel sulfate premium really has bounced around. Partly, I think, because we've seen two decent nickel spikes uh, in the LME price, obviously, at the start of this year, and um, then back in the middle of 2019. And generally, the sulfate price has been slower to follow those movements upwards. Um, so it's not necessarily due to the sulfate price or, well, in the back half of 2019, certainly sulfate demand was a little um, depressed because of that weakness in the Chinese EV sector because they pulled back on subsidies. Um, then you saw a spike in the LME price. So, yeah, the, the sulfate price took took longer to catch up to that level. So that lag period resulted in that discount. Fundamentally, though, I think basically as long as the market is reliant on people who are buying nickel briquettes or powder and converting that through to nickel sulfate, then fundamentally there has to be a premium in place for sulfate above the LME. And we would expect that cost of conversion is somewhere between $1,000, $2,000 a ton. It depends on where you are. It depends on the premium you're paying for powder and your delivery costs. Um, depends on the cost of acid in the region you're in. Um, and also, if you are integrated with precursors, you avoid the crystallization step, and that'll save you a few hundred dollars. So it's somewhere in that range. Um, and broadly speaking, the unless the LME price is really, really low, the cost of converting intermediate products like the MHP you get from the uh, hydrometallurgical, uh, hydrometallurgical plants in, in uh, around the world, but soon to be in Indonesia, that is likely to be uh, converted through to sulfate at a, at a lower cost than the cost of converting powder through to acid. Broadly speaking, you can probably turn an intermediate through to sulfate at about the same cost as you could convert it through to metal. So what that implies though, means we, yeah, we've got a floor on the premium for as long as you need people buying powder. But if we get enough supply of intermediates and um, the nickel sulfate demand isn't growing quickly enough, you've got a market that is entirely met by intermediates and that floor on the premium drops out potentially. That's not in our base case. I think we do see in the next couple of years, if the um, Indonesian hydro plants do ramp up successfully and quickly, and also um, something we'll discuss in a bit more detail, the Singshan announcement of moving some of their nickel pig iron, converting that in a sulfidation converter through to mat, which we've speculated, for, speculated about for a long time, but they've sort of accepted that they're going to do that. Um, we're going to see lots of intermediates and therefore not much reliance on refined nickel for perhaps a year or two, maybe less. Um, but then the underlying growth in the old, in the in the underlying growth in nickel sulfate demand beyond that will move us back into needing those powder converters and back into a situation where you've kind of got a guaranteed premium over the LME at least. Yeah, and you, it could you could lose it for a few months at a time. It, but also, there's obviously a, a higher end to that, right? You're not if there's lots of demand for nickel sulfate at a particular period of time and everyone's trying to get hold of it, then obviously you're not bounded at the top end by the cost of conversion. It could go sky high. Ryan, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I do. You mentioned before how the market is, has looked to reduce the amount of cobalt in the battery, and the replacement with nickel has been a big part of the narrative. Uh, so I guess in contrast is, you know, at some point, nickel, people are going to be looking for a substitution to nickel. At this point in the cycle, do you foresee any 
realistic or practical substitutions uh, for nickel in the battery? Um, not really. I think there's there's technologies, but most of them, I think, so you've got you've kind of got two two options, I suppose. You've got options outside the lithium ion battery family altogether, um, either sort of fuel cell vehicles or or non-nickel containing lithium batteries like lithium air and lithium sodia, uh, lithium sulfur ones, I think. I'm not super familiar with all of them, but all of those seem, they're a sort of lab, lab or pilot scale now. And if you think about the development of lithium ion batteries, they were at that kind of level in, I think, the early 90s, right? So it's a, it's a real long period before those will reach the kind of commercialization that is required. And even if they are closer to that level, once I think it's if you think about the um, the design and delivery period for a vehicle, those are you know eight ten year periods. It's very difficult to just say, oh, there's a new battery technology which is going to switch everything out tomorrow. Um, so there's always going to be a substantial lag, lag period there, even if it's proven that these um, you know uh, that substantially higher tech batteries that would prefer, have much greater energy density. Um, would uh, yeah be able to be produced commercially and cheaply enough and at large scale enough to to do that. Um, that said, there is definitely a there's danger if we see a sort of 2006 seven style nickel price spike. And you know back then that caused a lot of people to wherever possible stop using nickel containing stainless and either cut it down and use 200 series um, or remove altogether use 400 series in applications where you could get away with it. Um, yeah, nickel price goes up to fifty thousand dollars a ton. The battery can, the battery people are gonna. It's gonna really hurt them. Um, so they would do everything they can to to avoid that. And certainly, you would see technological developments and other approaches that are less nickel reliant. Whether that's a, I think BASF have talked to and other people have talked about like a very manganese dominant um, cathode chemistry. Um, I'm not sure to what extent it could necessarily. Whether it's like LF, LFP is the other one as well. Um, so that's grow. Grown in permanence has been used in China for a long time. So that's a lithium iron phosphate cathode, no nickel, no cobalt. It provides, it's substantially poorer in terms of energy density compared to nickel containing cathodes, um, but much cheaper. It's seen as reliable and safer than nickel containing cathodes. Um, and it's, it's really good in some applications like buses where firstly, you're not limited by area. So you can kind of stick more battery in. And secondly, buses are on fixed routes. You know when you're going to be able to charge them. So even if you can only go hundred miles on a charge, that's not going to be a problem. And in China, they're popular for people in urban environments. They're the cheap, you know, they're, they're much, much cheaper than uh, a, a Tesla would be, for example. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty popular there, but it's hard to see that catching on in other regions. Um, I mean, and, and especially North America where distance is all important. Um, you're not talking about, uh, you know, super built up environments. There's a lot of people will always want a vehicle that will be able to get them, you know, 300 at least miles on the charge. Um, I was going to ask you, so deficits, you know, it's a, it's another popular part of the narrative for any metal. Um, so what is the difference between a deficit and the regular fluctuations plus or minus in a, in a market? Um, I know it's kind of a broad question, but I think, you know, we've seen markets in deficit before and it doesn't necessarily translate into price appreciation. Yeah, well, and what we've seen through 2020 is the exact opposite. Um, the market, we estimate the 2020 market being in something like 100,000 ton surplus. Um, and yet the price, um, I'm not sure what the, you know, the January 1st to December 31st price increase was, but it was probably the best part of 20%, wasn't it? I think it was from 14,000 to 18,000 by the end of the year, maybe something like that. 
um, we get serious price increase despite the COVID nineteen pandemic and despite a uh, substantial surplus in the in the nickel price. So I think I think um, it does depend. It depends on the sort of the. I mean, people obviously that you know. I think on the spectrum of commodities, you have those that are driven entirely by investors and like things like gold, which is eventually a currency and bears next to no relation to supply and demand fundamentals. And then you have maybe I don't know steel, where it's very very closely related to supply and demand fundamentals. Nickel somewhere in the middle, but I would suggest that over the past year eighteen months, the interest from the battery side of things and the green you know, green investments and all that sort of thing has definitely increased the volatility. Um, and increase the extent to which financial dollars are moving the price around as opposed to the physical movement of nickel. Okay. I have another one. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so, um, you know, the geography has become this, this big deal when it comes to carbon footprint. Uh, we've seen the EU come out with specific legislation that said, you know, that carbon footprint is going to be a big part if you want to sell batteries within the EU. Uh, in my research, you know, you have three main markets, uh, you know, worldwide. You've got basically the Chinese, the EU, and maybe North America, primarily the States. Um, the EU and the States look like they're going to follow suit with this carbon footprint and, you know, try to allocate dollars towards the stuff that has the lowest carbon footprint. But China has shown that whether it's for power generation or anything else, they do what they need to do. And so I wondered if you could comment just on, you know, is geography really going to matter? Um, and yeah, just comment on that. Yeah, I think so. Um, definitely, definitely. I think there's sort of the, the onshoring and the regionalization. And if you, if <laughs> seems like a long time ago now, but I remember back at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, because of course, China had it first and everyone was, they, they shut down and all of those economies that are extremely reliant on Chinese exports for whatever it might be, suddenly realized just how exposed they were. Um, and I think as much as maybe a lot of that has been forgotten now, um, it's still there to some extent. I think just from a broad, being a, the broad sense of being extremely reliant on a single country, but also, yeah, absolutely, the uh, the desire to understand the sustainability from a carbon and a pollution perspective of the materials you're using. And I think in particular, the so the nickel price dropped by 20 odd percent um, in early March because Tsingshan announced they'd be moving NPI, which, you know, historically only used in stainless and convert, you know, doing some additional processing, reacting it with sulfur to make a mat, which then other companies can, rea- uh, can refine through to make nickel sulfate. Now we don't, we think that that's not necessarily a particularly the economics of that are not necessarily great because what you need is a big spread between the NPI, right? You might be able to, Singshan may well be able to produce nickel sulfate competitively, but they can produce NPI more competitively. So the spread between the NPI price and the sulfate price needs to be quite substantial, you know, certainly north of $3,000 a ton in order to make that kind of conversion worthwhile from a purely economic perspective. That said, it also provides producers that can do either with the flexibility and there's a strategic angle to it um, that I think is also uh, appealing beyond just the sheer margin. Um, the problem with that process for foreign consumers and non-Chinese consumers is that the NPI is already has a decent sized carbon footprint because it requires a lot of, it runs off an electric furnace, a lot of power consumed, and that is mostly coal-fired in Indonesia. Right, so you've got a lot of emissions that occur at the NPI stage, and then you're processing it further. Um, so the carbon footprint of a ton of nickel produced through the conversion of NPI to mat and then to sulfate is 
well, especially when you compare it to sort of the, and maybe it's a little bit of a special case, but uh, Terra Farme in particular in Finland, you know, they have this bio leach operation that uses very little power um, and the carbon emissions are very, very low. And if you compare the low end to the high end, there's a, something like a 20, 20 times difference uh, in terms of the, the CO2 emissions. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's an important point where companies sit on the cost curve is important, where they sit on the carbon curve will will be important. I mean, if I relate it to something like food consumption, you know, my, my wife, for example, likes to ensure that we, to the extent we can, buy organic foods and we pay a premium for that. Uh, we also pay a premium oftentimes for buying local versus buying uh, food that may come from further afield. Uh, to what extent in your discussions with sort of nickel market players um, um, uh, do you foresee the potential for sort of differential pricing, not just for nickel, but I guess more broadly for metals that are, let's say, more responsibly sourced as it, retain, as it relates to things like the carbon footprint, but I would suggest even as it relates to things like how local communities are treated, uh, employment conditions, um, and a whole host of, of ESG-related uh, issues that the mining industry sort of encounters on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, so um, I think that it's definitely a possibility. It's probably not within our, our sort of base case of how we would expect the markets to evolve within the next year or two. But I think into the longer term, the, the, the way that I, that I personally would expect it to be more likely to evolve is, you know, rather than there's a green premium that is transparent and people know that if you're getting it from this country, you pay this much and that country pay that much. Um, although you do see that in, and cobalt certainly, if you look at cobalt through the 2017-18 um, price spike, there uh, a huge amount of arbitrage opened up between the Chinese price and the rest of the world's price, you know, $10 a pound, so $22,000 a ton. Um, because of the inability and the inflexibility of the market to move units from the chemical to sorry, yeah, from the chemical to the metallurgical side of the market, and also from the China to the ex-China side of the market. Um, and that resulted in the the not ex-China price yeah, being dramatically higher for at least a period of time than, than the Chinese price. So I feel like that's slightly the more likely way the nickel market is expected could could be expected to go, in that if consumers outside of China and Indonesia say want to say the H power plants. We get these three up and they start working, but then that's pretty much it. Nickel sulfate demand still rising really, really quickly. The only remaining viable option um, on a very large scale would be conversion of that NPI through to MAT. If consumers in Europe and North America aren't going to touch that, then the fundamental cost of production for nickel sulfate for them is likely to be substantially higher than it would be in Asia. Um, and therefore, you'd end up, yeah, you'd end up with sort of building in that premium from a cost perspective, as of, which I suppose, actually, yeah, obviously that, that follows for organic and local food as well. It's it's the cost that drive the price higher as well to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, to, to that, it, you look at these things, they're driven either from the top down by regulatory requirements, such as what Brian had mentioned with respect to the, uh, the European Union's uh, sustainable batteries regulation that was put out in, in December, that seems to be heading towards setting these carbon uh, thresholds. Um, for for being able to sell EV batteries in the EU market, or these things are driven from below by consumers. Now, if if you know if uh, a car manufacturer can you know market themselves ultimately as saying, okay, we produce EVs. All the other car manufacturers also produce EVs, but guess what? Ours comes with with the lowest with the lowest kind of carbon footprint associated. 
I, I would foresee that's a, a key differentiator to probably a large part of the market that would buy an EV. And that ultimately the, the cost that is entailed in that would be passed along to consumers in the same way that, you know, the cost of, of buying organic produce is borne by consumers who, who are really kind of uh, interested in that uh, with respect to their own per- personal consumption. Yes. Although I suppose to the extent that that also means the price is higher, it means the mass adoption becomes more challenging um, in that less people have the money to pay for it, I suppose. But at the same time, we've got the underlying, uh, you know, reduction in the cost of making a battery, broadly speaking. Um, so yeah, that should offset some of those additional costs. But but yeah, you're right. And actually, I think one thing to to note there that um, is that things like the European carbon border tariff um, that they're thinking about introducing that would essentially, you know, if, if we bring in a carbon tax and the suddenly the cost of making steel or aluminum within the EU, we've made our producers much less competitive or some of them. And they're now much and now imports can come in and be priced lower that's you know what they're trying to do is you know, set up a, a carbon t- a border tariff in order to account for that adjustment um, and avoid people reverting to using potentially higher carbon footprint imported materials just because the the carbon tariff is not going to be global it's only going to be um, within the EU region and yeah it's, it's definitely possible that the, that a top-down legislation you, you could see that happening as well Alex, is the CRU group still bullish on nickel if you subtract EV demand in your forecasts? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, I haven't thought about it. Certainly, um, I mean, I, th- I think we'd be much less, <laughs> less bullish for sure. It's a huge part of um, future demand growth. I think, you know, um, I checked a table in front of me. I think it's probably more than 50% of demand growth over the next 10 years is down to batteries. So, um, but that said, obviously, if, if you take the EVs out, you can take a bunch, you know, a bunch of the supply issues come out as well. And um, I don't know, I think certainly we, we, even without EVs, we wouldn't go back to the uh, horrible lows of late 2015, early 2016, where the price was, you know, briefly below $9,000 a ton. Um yeah, I, it's, t- it's a tough so, question. I so couldn't say that, exactly where we see the prices, but yeah, batteries is obviously such a huge, huge part of uh, the the positive story for nickel. And yeah, anything that undercuts that, whether it's alternative technologies, whether it's massive drawback on subsidies for EVs that will cut into EV growth in the uh, in the near term, um, or whether it's you know people are expecting battery, the costs of making a battery to continue to come down and get under that sort of magical hundred hundred dollars per kilowatt hour. That people say, okay, well, at that point, roughly speaking, they're equated to ICs. If that doesn't occur, and one way that it could not occur is because all the um, all the manufacturing costs are getting cut down as much as possible by by scaling up. Talking about through through these gigafactories that are doing, you know, uh, seventy kilowatts of battery, gigawatts of battery capacity, as opposed to one gigawatt battery capacity, um, then. Um, you become the, the the function of the cost of producing a battery that is related just to the underlying metals prices becomes greater, right? And there's nothing, or there's not necessarily much that the end user can do about that. Um, so the bit, so that cost of a battery becomes more exposed to things like the nickel and, and lithium prices um, in a way that at the moment they're important, but they're not all important because there's a bunch of other factors that go into it as well. Martin, did you want to chime in? I know you're bullish on nickel apart from the EV revolution you've said in the past. Yeah, I, I guess I I, I am. I, I do think um, that the forecasters 
have a, a long track record, particularly over the last 10 or 15 years of underestimating stainless demand growth. Um, you know, typically placing that in their forecasts at two to 3% per annum while, while it's consistently kind of surprised to the upside. So I do think the stainless market is, 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 is continuing to be strong. And I think a lot of what Tsingshan is doing has always been to try to really um, kind of uh, increase the push towards 300 series stainless consumption, which is the highest nickel content stainless product. Um, I'd, I'd put maybe one more question to, to Alex with respect to Tsingshan's move to, um, you know, converting uh, NPI to, uh, to, to mat for, for batteries. What, what implications can people take away from that with respect to the, um, the prospectivity of, of the ramp up of, of HPAL operations? Does that provide any kind of read between the lines commentary on how uh, well, uh, the HPAL operations will ramp up. How much they'll end up costing from a capital standpoint and from an operating standpoint. Uh, I wonder if there are any implications or, or, or conclusions that can be drawn from that. Um, I think you yes, a little, a little bit speculative, but was sort of in theory. Okay, well, if these guys are suddenly like, well, can we get some? Can we get a different intermediate from a different supplier because we're concerned we're not going to get it from these HPAL parts because. Um, yeah, one of the off-takers of that mat is invested in one of the HPAL plants as well. Um, it's, I sort of, yeah, the, the logic is there, I think, and certainly the HPAL, well, they, they when they were initially announced, they were announced at incredibly low reported CapEx and very, very aggressive construction ramp-up schedules. The construction has already been pushed back a bit. I think some of them, you know, back in 20, they were probably expected to come on stream last year, maybe even in 2019 yeah. when it was first announced. Yeah. Um, so that's been pushed back, but I think we're still, yeah, I, I, we're still expecting a, a more than a hundred thousand tons of nickel to come from those HPL plants by 2023. Um, and it, it may talk to the prospectivity of the HPL plants. It may just talk to overall nickel sulfate demand, um, on the same time, I guess either way that's bullish for, uh, for the nickel price. Ryan, do you have any concluding thoughts or what would be some key takeaways you think that the average junior mining speculator that's looking at nickel juniors, what should they take away from this conversation? Uh, just how complex metals markets are. <laughs> Definitely. Then that's why Brian and Martin are here. I'm kind of like the fourth guy in the room just learning as the intelligent people ask the questions if you're wondering why I'm not talking as much. Like they're they're extremely complex, and um, you can see how much knowledge Alex has. And you know, me as an investor, I just feel like I'm on the the edge of of knowing something, and that's kind of maybe a dangerous place to be in some ways. And I think with a lot of retail investors, the tendency is to think that they're right there and they can predict where the metal price is going. And even more dangerous, in my view, is that they'll invest in a junior resource company because they're bullish on the metal price. And the fact is that you know the metals markets are complex and have their own risks. And junior resource companies have a whole other set of risks that that come with them. And so you can be you can be wrong on actually on both cases. And I think, you know, the tendency is more people will lose because of that than win. And uh, you invest, if you're bullish on the metal, you invest in the metal. If you're bullish, uh, or if you, if you want to invest in the junior resource sector, you find the right people that have got good projects, got a set of catalysts that are going to get market recognition, and the company is selling for less than it's worth. You do that, you can protect your downside risk, and you'll be you'll be more successful more often. Yeah. Martin, final thoughts for you? Yeah, I mean, I'd just pick up on that. Um, 
you know, for FPX, yes, it is complex around determining exactly what type of product we should produce to maximize the economics of, of our of our projects here, here in uh, British Columbia. Um, at the end of the day, we think we could produce products for both of the markets at quite low costs. And th- that's that's really the, the, the sort of the important part um, is, you know, seeing costs, you know, to, to produce product for stainless sort of below $3 a pound. Um, and, and so at the end of the day, positioning on the cost curve, I think we're, we're well positioned in that respect. And also on the carbon curve, I think we, we can produce nickel for, for quite a low carbon footprint so that come what may in the, in the nickel market, particularly in the battery market, the extent to which, you know, people are buying EVs and to the extent to which there's, they're buying high nickel content EVs. I won't say it doesn't matter to us, but, um, it matters less than, than, uh, than it might for, for some other companies who are really counting on a, a huge boom in nickel. I think we're very comfortable at today's price level in the long term could, that our, that our project could be quite sort of, uh, profitable. And Alex, final thoughts, please. Yeah, well, I've been good to talk through there. And I think there's a lot of interesting topics in the nickel industry and it's, it's difficult because yeah, the, the underlying driver that's getting so many people inside in the nickel industry is still only a relatively small part. It's very reliant on things where there's a huge amount of uncertainty, whether that's in EV numbers, whether it's in battery technology, whether it's in the supply and the supply or demand fundamentals of the, the battery side of the nickel market and the wider nickel market in general. All of these things interact. So it's very hard to, to pick out a single aspect. Um, yeah, and I think I think from a sort of a what's going to be really interesting or I really hope to see is sort of, you know, more development within North America of sort of the full nickel value chain that will help um build out a low-cost sort of source of uh, EVs within within the region. Excellent. And Alex, if someone wants to follow you, what's the best way to do that? Like LinkedIn, would that be it? I'm sure, yeah. Look up my extremely Googleable surname on uh, on LinkedIn. And yeah, by all means, shoot me a message um, or email me at uh, alex.larn at crugroup.com. Excellent. Well, well, with that, we'll call it a wrap. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me and thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.